Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening, children of the night. This week, I revisited one of my all-time favorite horror films. It follows. I understand it has to be a sort of spiritual successor to the concepts laid out in The Ring. Do you remember when The Ring came out? That was a big deal. A real big deal. Almost as big as The Blair Witch Project. One of the things with The Ring that made it interesting and was instrumental to the plot is the understanding of the backstory of the curse that now haunts the protagonists. 
Discovering the origins of that curse is the only way that they could understand it and perhaps escape it. It follows as a similar premise, there is a curse, which, once received, can only be disposed of by passing it on to someone else. However, it follows issues any attempt to investigate the genesis of its evil, instead focusing exclusively on its damage on the cast of characters right now. As I've spent more and more time on this podcast, I have come to appreciate the writer who thumbs his or her nose at the fandom that demands unending nuance and backstory on which to engorge ourselves with. Don't get me wrong, I really do enjoy some of the details in some of the larger fictional universes and how everything does, or doesn't, fit together. Just the other week I was looking through a fan-maintained Dresden Files wiki. Side note to this sidebar, if you like the Dresden Files, give Richard Cadry's Sandman Slim series a go. If Jim Butcher's The Dresden Files can be awarded a PG-13 rating, the Sandman Slim books get a hard R rating. Anyway, the self-imposed judicious edits is something that I have strongly come to appreciate in a story, be it one of our pieces of short fiction, a lengthy novel, or some film. I've really come to enjoy the restraint in that kind of writing. If a story doesn't need extensive world-building to make its plot work, then cut it out. It doesn't need to be there. Your plot will be cleaner, leaner, and, in horror's case, meaner. Let's hear tonight's story. C.R. Langille spent many a Saturday afternoon watching monster movies with his mother. It wasn't long before he started crafting nightmares to share with his readers. He is an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association, organizer for the Utah chapter, a member of the League of Utah Writers, and received his MFA writing popular fiction from Seton Hill University. Listen with me to C.R. Langille's Kathy Loves Kittens, a Tales to Terrify original. The car slammed into our sedan with enough force that I think I blacked out for a few moments. When I came to, the world was spinning ass over end, and even though it was hard to focus, two things stood out. Kathy, my four-year-old daughter, shrieked in the seat behind mine, while my wife Olivia was eerily silent and calm. Kathy's screams ended abruptly, just before the car smashed into a large tree. I tried to move, but the steering column pinned my body to the seat. My breath came in short gasps. I needed to check on Kathy needed to know if she was okay. I thrashed against the seat and the steering wheel that crushed my chest, but couldn't move the twisted metal. In the distance, through the ringing in my ears and the metronome of the turn signal, the sad wail of sirens filled the air. They were slightly off-tune and more akin to an air raid alarm than first responders. There was something else as well, a low mumbling as if someone were muttering or giggling outside the car. Moments later, I passed out. I awoke in a hospital room surrounded by the buzz of medical equipment and the steady beep of a heart rate monitor. My entire body ached, with even the slightest of movements causing me pain. A woman walked into the room holding a clipboard. She wore a brilliant white medical coat and had her hair pulled up in a tight bun. Her eyes were soft, full of care as well as a hint of something else, something I couldn't place. Pain? Sadness? Mr. Devon, you're awake. 
She said it with a hint of surprise, making a few notes on the clipboard. There was also something else behind her voice, something that matched the look in her eyes. A nurse followed shortly after. He shot me an empty smile as he started checking my vitals. He was a squat fellow, with a scraggly beard the color of a fire engine. Kathy loved fire engines. Where's Kathy? The doctor cocked her head, her eyes furrowed with confusion. Mr. Devon, how are you feeling? she asked. You've had a rough run and you suffered a nasty blow to your head. Where's my family? She let out a sigh, pursing her lips. Mr. Devon, your wife is dead. Her funeral was two days ago. I'm very sorry for your loss. You've been in a coma for the last two weeks. A mix of emotions ran through my mind. I was sad for sure, but more empty than anything else. I should have been a wreck, crying out against God and his decisions, but it wasn't in me. I was concerned about something else. What about Kathy? Who? My daughter. I braced myself for the worst, yet I wasn't prepared for what she said. Mr. Devon, there was no one else at the scene of the accident other than you and your wife. Kathy's bedroom was empty, not just void of her presence, but literally empty. Her furniture was gone, her toys were gone, even the damn poster of the kitten on the wall was gone. It didn't make any sense. The police were less than helpful. All they had to offer were blank stares, or even worse, looks filled with pity. The investigator in charge of my case, Detective Molly Shins, was nice enough, but she didn't believe anything I had to say about Kathy. No one believed me. Kathy was real. I remembered when she was born at the Oak Heights Regional Hospital. Kathy entered the world peacefully, hardly making a noise. She was so small and warm against my chest. I never wanted to let her go. Going back to work those first few weeks after her birth was tough. Missing her first and second birthday was tough. But I had to pay the bills I had to provide. I remembered her fourth birthday party. Olivia and I had gotten her a kitten. A little black thing with a white spot over one eye. Kathy loved the kitten so very much and named it Dr. Eyepatch. It was still here. It was real. It had to be because it nuzzled up to my legs as it walked by in the hallway. Olivia kept a number of photo albums, which I thought was archaic. It was the digital age, but for whatever reason, she loved the look and feel of a physical picture. I grabbed one from under the bed and opened it. Much like Kathy's room, all the photos of my little girl were gone. Blank spaces filled the albums, staring back at me, as if holding little picket signs saying, Where'd she go? You don't know. My hand shook as I placed the photo album on the bed. It took me three tries to dial Detective Shin's number correctly. This is Detective Shins. Her voice was a little raspy, as if she smoked a pack a day for the last twenty years. But the times I had actually been in the same room with her, she smelled of something bitter and sweet, not cigarette smoke. The photos are gone, I said. Mr. Devon? The photos are gone, just like the bedroom. Someone is... Shin's sigh cut me off. Her patience was wearing thin. Grant, have you been taking the medication the doctor prescribed for you? Extreme trauma and a head injury can cause some odd things to happen, Shin said. God damn it, I'm not hallucinating. My daughter is gone. Gone as if she never existed in the first place. 
and you and everyone else on the planet think I'm making it up. The phone connection cracked, and static leaked through. There was a rhythmic beep in the background, followed by some unintelligible words. It didn't sound like Shin's, even with her rasping voice. You're breaking up, detective. I can't hear you. I checked my cell reception. It had full bars. As I returned the phone to my ear, Shin's sandpaper voice came through clearly. I said I'll be by later to take a statement and check up on you. It was out of pity Shins was coming over, or to ensure I wasn't a danger to myself or anyone else. Her tone said it all, and her sigh told me more than I wanted to know. She'd be acting just the same as me, if not crazier, if it were her kid who was erased. The doorbell rang, echoing through the empty house. Dr. Eyepatch scrambled past me, racing towards the front door. I had barely hung up with Shins. There was no way she could have arrived so quickly. Whoever was at the door started to hit the bell faster and faster. Okay, okay, I'm coming, I said under my breath. The doorbell continued to ring with a renewed fervor, the ring stringing together to the point that it almost turned into one long tone. I rounded the corner, and the front door was in sight. The ringing stopped. Lightning crashed outside, filling the darkened room with staccato light. It illuminated a figure on the front porch, through the side glass on the door. The figure's shadow stretched across the walls, growing even taller. The shadow disappeared as the lightning finished. I crept to the door, hesitant to open it. Hello? I asked, my throat dry. There was no response. Thunder rolled across the valley and shook the house. I sauntered up to the peephole and peered out. The front porch was empty. The wind blew the trees and shrubs around in a chaotic dance, and the lightning in the distance made it hard to focus. But there was no one out there. There was a low chuckle, followed by incomprehensible whispers and mutters. I'd heard that voice before. It was the same voice that came through the static on the phone, the same gibbering voice I heard during the wreck. Who are you? Something slid across the porch, stopping just in front of the door. Another chuckle. Who are you? I asked again, this time with more force. I looked through the peephole, trying to get a look at who was out there, but there was nothing but darkness and wind. I twisted the doorknob and flung the door open with enough force for the knob to leave a hole in the drywall. There was nobody there. However, there was a cardboard box on the ground, sealed with packing tape. Written in chicken-scratch handwriting across the top, in black ink, was a sentence that made me want to throw up. It read, Kathy Loves Kittens. I pulled the box into the house and placed it on the kitchen table. I stared at the box for what seemed like hours until I finally grabbed a knife from the counter and cut the packing tape. Hundreds of foam packing peanuts lined the inside, covering the contents. I rummaged around and pulled out a blood-red envelope with silver filigree decorating the edges. My name, printed with black ink in fine lettering, adorned the front. A bulky wax seal with a red and black ribbon was on the back. On the seal was an impression of a crude, thin face with no eyes. I broke the seal on the envelope and pulled the letter out. Kathy loves kittens. You know this, of course but I find it quite amusing. She talks about Dr. Eyepatch constantly. Sometimes I think she wants to see the cat, 
more than she wants to see you. Who am I kidding? She adores you. Kathy refuses to go anywhere until she sees you again. That's the innocence of children, I suppose, still wanting to see you, even when you mess up. You messed up, Grant. While I want to give Kathy her wish, I'm not sure you deserve to see her. Let's see how much you want to find her. Listen closely and try not to get the song stuck in your head. Regards. F. Period. My hands shook as I put the letter down, my head swimming with even more questions. I stood and went to the kitchen cupboard to pour myself a glass of whiskey. The alcohol burned on the way down, and even worse on the way back up. I'd never had that kind of reaction to alcohol before. Sure, there had been times in my younger years that I drank so much I threw up, but this was something else. There was a muffled series of tones emanating from the box on the counter. I dug through the box, my hand brushing against a corner of something solid. I grabbed it and pulled it out, spilling packaging peanuts all over the floor. It was a small, shortwave radio. There was a knob for volume and an antenna. There were no brand markings, no lettering at all. The three tones sounded off again, louder now that it was out of the box. I tried to tune the radio, but the knob refused to move. I adjusted the volume just as the three tones sounded off for a third time. This time, after the tones, music started playing. It was old, maybe from the twenties or thirties, something that warbled a little, slightly off-tune as it tried to be catchy. There was another noise, something in the background of the music. A voice. It was the voice of the person who had been at the wreck and stood outside my doorstep not moments before. He muttered a little and then laughed. Listen closely, boys and ghouls. We've got a special message for you today. Set your decoder rings to Hotel 03, kiddos. That's Hotel 03. The music stopped, but there was still static. Then Kathy's voice came on the air. I fell to my knees, tears pouring down my face. Dr. Eyepatch floundered over to me, rubbing up against my hand. I scooped him up, holding him tight. She's alive. Dr. Eyepatch let out a meow in response. Kathy was still talking over the radio. I'd been so happy to hear her voice that I didn't even pay attention to what she said. I gave the transmission my full attention. I started to jot the numbers down on a nearby envelope. 87456 87432 25346 88432 90331 Kathy droned on spouting groups of five numbers. Her voice was flat and monotone, but at the end of the message, she giggled. I loved her giggle. It was so innocent and pure. Then she was gone. No, come back! I stood and grabbed the radio. I turned the volume up, but it didn't matter. She was gone. I hope you boys and ghouls got that super fun message. Tune in tomorrow for more. Don't lose your decoder rings or you'll be out of luck, Chuck. I dropped the radio. I rubbed my head until it hurt. What could I do? Without the decoder ring, I wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of the message. I wouldn't be able to find my Kathy. I needed the decoder ring. I growled and flung the cardboard box off the table. Packaging peanuts flew across the floor in a miniature tsunami. The doorbell rang, echoing through the house. Dr. Eyepatch poked his head around the corner 
then scrambled up the stairs. I grabbed a knife from the knife block and stormed to the front door. If it was the guy who took my Kathy away, then there would be hell to pay. I flung the door open, knife at the ready, only to find Detective Shin's disapproving stare greeting me. Would you like to put the knife down, Mr. Devon? Shins looked at me from across my kitchen table, then scanned the disaster that was the kitchen. She pursed her lips before writing something down in a small notebook. Can you describe the voice again, Mr. Devon? It was deep and gravelly, almost like someone who smoked a lot. I glanced up to see if Shins would take offense to the smoking remark, but she continued to look at me with a blank stare. Do you have reason to believe that this person has anything against you, Mr. Devon? Someone you know, perhaps? No, no one. I don't know who it is or why they are doing this, but they have my daughter. Shin started writing again. She pointed to the radio on the table. This is the device you found in the box? That's correct. Shins reached out for the radio, but pulled her hand back before she touched it. Instead, she pulled out a camera and snapped a few photos. Mr. Devon, I'd like to ask you a few more questions about your wife. I froze. I'd already answered too many questions about Olivia. I don't see what Olivia has to do with my daughter's disappearance. Shins wrote some notes down in her notebook and then looked at me. Maybe nothing, maybe everything. It's my job to figure out the facts. Please describe the events leading up to the accident. I've already done this, I said. Humor me. I stared off toward the liquor cabinet, and my stomach churned. Mr. Devon, please answer my questions, and I'll look into this package as well as order increased patrols in your neighborhood. Perhaps your gibbering man will haunt your doorstep again. Why did you call him that? I asked. Call who what? The gibbering man. Why did you call him that? I have no clue what you're talking about, Mr. Devon. Please stop avoiding the question. The quicker I answered her questions, the quicker she would be out of here and searching for my daughter, or this gibbering man. We left the house around six in the evening. Where were you going? I don't quite remember. All I know is that we were in a hurry. Shins took some more notes. Did you speed that night? Nothing too crazy, just the standard five to seven miles over the limit. Did you mess up? You messed up, Grant. Excuse me, I asked. I said, what did you and Olivia talk about during the ride? My stomach twisted, and I wanted to throw up again. Maybe I just needed a good night's sleep. I rubbed my forehead, but it didn't do much to help me focus. I don't remember. Small talk. Shins nodded, jotted some notes, and then looked me in the eyes. Did your wife make any phone calls prior to the accident? A small ache started in my knuckles and slithered up my arm. The metallic taste of pennies appeared in my mouth, but was gone as quick as it came. Not that I can think of. Why? We pulled your wife's phone records. Yours as well. She made some interesting phone calls, Mr. Devon. Shins gave me a devilish grin that spread from ear to ear. This was the first time I remembered her ever smiling, and I didn't like it. I clenched my hand into a fist, and the ache in my knuckles turned into a burn. What do you mean? Shins continued to grin at me, fire in her eyes as she pulled a folded piece of paper from her coat pocket. She took her sweet time unfolding it, knowing she was torturing me with each movement. You sure you want to know? 
Things change when you know things. What the hell is wrong with you? I asked, slamming my hand onto the kitchen table. Her smile disappeared, but the fire remained in her eyes. She left the paper on the table and got up. I'll leave this here with you. Do what you want with it. Don't mess it up, Grant. The room spun circles around me, and I stumbled to the kitchen sink, unloading round two of vomit. When I finished, Shins was gone, but the paper was still there. I sat back down and turned it over. There was a list of Olivia's recent phone calls. I recognized my number, but she had also made a lot of calls to another number. I wasn't sure who it belonged to, so I called it. It rang three times, and then someone answered. For a long time, there was nothing but the heavy breathing on the other end of a line. Hello? I asked. What do you want, Grant? I knew the voice. It belonged to my neighbor, Sterling Smith. I hung up the phone and flew out the door. Why the hell had Olivia called Sterling so much? I needed answers, and he had them. He met me at the porch as I stormed up to his house. He had two black eyes and a bandage over his nose. That would explain the labored breathing. I walked up to him, about to give him what for, and asked the million-dollar question when he socked me in the face. I lost my vision for a moment when the world exploded. My ears rang and blood filled my mouth. I tried to focus on him, but tears poured from my eyes. He swung at me again, but I reacted in time, diverting the blow with my elbow as I brought my arm up to protect my face. I wrapped the same arm around his, hooking it tight. Then I reared back and headbutted him in the face. Stars again, but this time he let out a cry of agony and dropped to his knees. I still had his arm hooked, so he dragged me to the ground with him. Enough, Sterling said, holding his hands up as he rolled onto his back. Jesus, Grant, I think you rebroke my nose again. I touched my own nose and flinched. Pretty sure you broke mine, too. I rolled away from him and got on my hands and knees. Blood poured from my nose, spattering his porch steps. The hell was that about, anyway? I asked. Give me a break. Get amnesia in the accident? I rubbed my forehead. It was tender where I'd hit Sterling. Let's say I did, I said. I had a sneaking suspicion about where this would go, but I had to play it through. Humor me. Humor you? I ought to have you arrested. Last time you came over, you kicked the living shit out of me. I get it. I probably deserved it. But you were a madman. If it weren't for Olivia, you would have killed me. I saw it in your eyes. Sterling's eyes were wide as he talked. He kept his distance from me, jumping a little when I'd move. Damn, I can't remember any of it. Why did I attack you? He spit out a thick wad of blood. Seriously? I shrugged. I got to my feet and he scrambled back. Take it easy. I'm done. Just answer the fucking question. He sighed and laid his head against his doorframe. Sterling covered his eyes and it took me a moment to realize he was crying. Olivia, he said. I knew it. She'd been a little too affectionate, a little too accommodating to my wants, as if she were making up for something. I was too busy or too stupid to realize it. You must have found out, he continued. She called, warning me that you were coming. I was going to leave the house and let you cool down. But you got me before I could get in my car. You've got a mean right hand. My knuckles tingled. But you messed up, didn't you, Grant? I looked up, and Sterling was smiling, 
Blood still poured from his broken nose, running down his cheeks and over his lips. You messed up, and now she's dead. He started laughing. I lunged at him and hit him in the face so hard my shoulder jarred with the impact. Sterling's head snapped back into the doorframe, and he fell limp to the porch. I got to my feet and was about to turn back to the house when I noticed a picture in a silver frame sitting on Sterling's mantle. It was of him and Olivia. I walked into his house and grabbed the picture. They were smiling, sitting on a fallen pine tree somewhere in the mountains. Rage boiled from my guts, and I threw the picture against the wall. The glass shattered and the frame broke. There was a small wad of paper stuffed behind the picture, just peeking out from one of the corners. I grabbed it, careful not to cut myself on the broken glass. It was a bundle of papers consisting of post-it notes, notebook paper, and computer paper. Three haphazardly placed staples held them together. The front, written in crayon, stated, Secret Decoder Ring. Sterling wasn't on the porch when I walked out of his house. I wondered where he had slunk off to, but I had bigger things on my mind. Things like the secret decoder ring notebook I had found. The notes I had taken on Kathy's numbers were still on the kitchen table. It sat next to Detective Shin's phone record. I sat down and flipped open the decoder book. What was the key? Hotel 03, boys and ghouls. I found Hotel 03. The book was broken down into rows and columns, with the rows two digits and the columns three. Words, phrases, and numbers jumbled the pages. I grabbed the notes I had taken and started searching. Dr. Eyepatch jumped up onto the kitchen table, nearly gave me a heart attack. He looked at the secret decoder ring book and at my paper. He let out a short meow and then hopped off the table, running figure eights around my legs. The first number I had written down was 87456. It took me a moment to figure it out, but the first two digits were the rows. The other three were for the column. I found it after flipping through a few pages. I. I searched for the next number, 87432. Want. Then the next, 25346. Two. I only had two left. I found the next. Come. Then the final one. My hands were shaking, which made turning the pages hard. My nose still hurt like a son of a bitch, and my eyes were tearing up. I wasn't sure if it was from the broken nose or Kathy's message. I found the last number and almost dropped the book. Instead of one word, it was an entire phrase. Home. But I can't. I can't because you messed up, Daddy. What did I do? How did I mess up? I want to make it right. I asked to nobody, to everybody. What did I do that was so horrible that someone would take my little girl? The shortwave radio kicked on, playing the old-timey music again. That is the question, isn't it? The gibbering man said over the air. What did you do? Wish I could tell you, but I'm not allowed. Keep playing the game and hopefully you'll find out and make things right. This little girl wants to go home. Daddy? It was Kathy's voice. Don't worry, honey. Daddy is going to make things right. I'm going to get you and bring you home. The radio powered off. I didn't know what to do. Shins was no help at all. In fact, I was starting to suspect maybe she was in on the whole thing. I grabbed the radio and headed upstairs to bed. I stopped at the top of the landing. Kathy's bedroom light was on. Hello? 
Dr. Eyepatch ran out of her room and down the hall. I walked over to her room and peered in. It was as I had left it earlier, barren, with the exception of a picture on the wall. It was a poster of a kitten hanging on a tree limb with the caption, Hang in there, in bold white letters at the bottom. That damned poster, so cliché, but she loved it. It had been gone before, but now it had returned. I wanted to smile, but I didn't know what it all meant. Hang in there. I'm trying, honey, I'm trying. With nothing left to do, I went to bed. I awoke in the middle of the night reaching out for Olivia. Her side of the bed was empty, not new, but it still hurt to reach out and find her gone. Dr. Eyepatch sat in the middle of the floor staring at me. It was strange. He usually jumped onto the bed. I flipped on the nightlight to get a better look. He was sitting on another black and red envelope. My hands were shaking as I opened it. The gibbering man, Grant? That's what you're calling me? I suppose it's better than what most folks call me. Kathy had fun reading that little radio message for me. Did you enjoy hearing her voice? That was a treat just for you. Something to wet your whistle and get you motivated. Now, here's the hard part, Grant. Read this next part closely and pay attention to the details. This isn't for you. You're exactly where I want you, and nothing will change that. This is for Kathy. Tune in later for more instructions. Toodles. F. Three tones blasted from the shortwave, echoing through the room. I grabbed a pen and paper from my nightstand and waited. The tones blasted again in a different rhythm, almost like the beep of hospital equipment. It was getting harder to draw in air, and my vision started to tunnel, the color bleeding out until everything was a dulled version of itself. I dropped to my knees, the pen and paper falling to the floor. I tried to stand but only ended up pulling the blankets off the bed. There was a tremendous pressure on my chest, as if the steering column still pinned me against the seat of our wrecked sedan. The tones blasted one more time in a long, drawn-out buzz. Then the music started to play. It was that same warbled tune from before, but with it, the pressure let off my chest. I took in one big gulp of air, and the color returned to my vision. Welcome back, boys and ghouls. We've got another special message for you out there. This one goes out to all you fans of ooey-gooey chocolate chunk extreme cookies. There's truth in the center of those delicious devils. Now set your decoder rings to Papa 15. That's Papa 1-5. I got my pen and paper ready, retrieving them from the floor. Would Kathy read the numbers again? To hear her voice was both elating and heartbreaking at the same time. The static of the shortwave cracked, followed by the ruffling and rumble of somebody moving the microphone. Then Kathy laughed. It was the kind of pure laugh that only children could make, one that melted hearts and could paint a smile on the sourest of faces. It brought tears to my eyes. Hi, Daddy. I miss you. Say hi to Dr. Eyepatch for me. I miss you too, honey. Stay strong for Daddy. Someone whispered something in the background. It was him. I knew it had to be. His whispers crawled through the signal and into my ears, and I imagined I could hear his words. It was a jumble of psychotic madness that burrowed into my brain and burned red hot. 
The words themselves were never meant for human consumption. I knew this on some level of my psyche. Okay, Kathy said to the gibbering man, and the muttering stopped. 72105-83222-44357. She repeated the numbers again, which was good. I had missed them the first time through. I was going over the numbers again when his voice bled through the radio. Don't mess up, Grant. Kathy's depending on you. Then the radio went silent. Dr. Eyepatch poked his head out from underneath the bed, giving me a look filled to the brim with boredom. He padded over to me and hopped up onto the bed, sitting directly on top of my notes. I scratched him underneath his chin, which elicited a soft purr from deep down in his kitty engine. After a moment, he grew bored of my affection, scampered off into the hallway. I grabbed the notes and retrieved the codebook. Now that I knew how the messages worked, it didn't take long to decode. The number turned out to be one simple sentence. I love cookies. What the hell did that mean? What kind of message was it? A blood drop spattered across the codebook, soaking into the white paper. Another one followed seconds later. I reached up to my face and my fingers came away covered in blood. I journeyed to the bathroom and flicked on the lights. As they flickered, I caught movement behind me. It was Olivia. Her face was a collection of bruises and cuts. Why? One word was all she said, but it cracked the bathroom mirror, breaking my image in two. I spun around expecting her to be gone as if it was a scene from some cliché horror flick, but she still stood there. I'm not sure what was more disturbing, the fact that my dead, beaten wife stood in front of me asking why, or the fact that she smiled a cold, heartless smile. Hate rolled off her like a stench that watered my eyes. Why did you mess up, Grant? I, I didn't mess up, honey. Her smile grew even wider, splitting her mouth into a bloody grin. Bits of flesh dropped from her cheeks and hit the floor, sizzling on impact, like bacon in a hot pan. Smoke started to rise from her body, filling the bathroom with a sickly haze. The temperature shot up to sauna levels, and sweat began to bead on my skin. I turned to run. Some unseen force slammed the bathroom door, nearly re-breaking my nose. I tried to open it, but I couldn't. The doorknob went red-hot in my hands, searing the flesh. Why? She stood behind me and screamed the question so loud my ears stopped working. Since flight wasn't an option, I only had one avenue left. Fight. I turned, swinging with a wide haymaker, my fist connected with Olivia's head with a wild, glancing blow. She laughed, and even though my ears still rang, I could hear it clearly. I continued to hit her, smashing down with my fists and driving her to the floor. She laughed even louder. I didn't mess up. You did. Her face fell apart under my rain of blows until there was nothing left but a bloody mess on the bathroom floor. I was sobbing, kneeling on the tile. My body shook and I couldn't feel my hands. They were stained red, and I was pretty sure I'd broken a few bones. The lights flickered again, and she was gone. Disappeared as if she was never there to begin with. My hands were still broken, and bloodied with the bathroom tile cracked from the repeated impacts. I found my way to my feet and looked in the mirror, expecting to see her again, but it was just an empty bathroom in an empty house. I sank to the floor and curled up into a ball, 
hoping it was all a dream, hoping that I would wake up and my family would be back and everything would be right. That thought train derailed when a large bang vibrated through the house, as if someone had dropped a bowling ball on the hardwood floor from two stories up. The lights went out with the crash, shrouding the house in darkness. I got to my feet, feeling along the wall until I found the light switch. I flipped it a few times, but nothing happened. I shuffled out of the bathroom. All the power was out, leaving the room nothing but a wall of black. I took a step, but stopped when something ran through the hallway. It was heavier than Dr. Eyepatch and had a different cadence. Hello? Nothing. I moved with slow, deliberate steps toward the hall. My heart pounded against my chest, ready to burst at any moment. The ringing in my ears wavered, going in and out in a strange rhythm. Something ran through the hall again, close enough it brushed by my arm. It was cold, sending a chill up my arm and into my body. Whatever it was, it ran into Kathy's bedroom and slammed the door behind it. Who's there? Her bedroom light turned on, shining out from underneath the closed door like a beacon. Whoever was in there ran around the room in circles. Then there was a giggle. A child's giggle. Kathy? Honey? I ran toward the bedroom, flinging the door open. It slammed against the wall, rebounding back into my vision. Just before it cut off my sight, there was a blurred glimpse of a dark-haired child running past. It had to be Kathy. I caught the swinging door and opened it fully, hoping to see my little girl playing in her room. But she wasn't there. Nobody was there. I checked back in the hallway to make sure someone didn't slip by, but I was alone. The room was different than before. This time, Kathy's bed sat nestled in the corner, made up with a fresh set of sheets. Her kitten poster still hung on the wall, but otherwise, everything else was gone. I walked into the room, and the overwhelming aroma of fresh-baked cookies assaulted my senses. It was strong, as if I were at Olivia's parents' house. They were always baking treats for Kathy. Her favorite was Grandma's ooey-gooey chocolate chunk extreme. I lowered my head against the wall. Of course. Everything pointed to the in-laws' house. We used to go once a month. Each time Kathy would get so excited because Grandma would let her help bake the cookies. I had to go there. As if in response to my idea, the house lights turned back on. I returned to the bedroom and kneeled at my nightstand. There was a small gun safe secured to the inside. I punched in the correct sequence and the safe door popped open. But my gun was gone. I searched all around the bedroom, but the gun and the ammo were missing. Time was running out. Kathy needed me, so I made a command decision and left without the weapon. I wasn't that great of a shot anyway. I rushed down to the kitchen to get my car keys and found Detective Shin sitting at my kitchen table. Her gun was out and on the table. She looked up at me with a tired smile, the kind people gave as an almost automatic reaction. Shins reached into her coat and pulled out a pack of cigarettes. You know, every time I smoke one of these things, it feels like my lungs are burning to ashes. But I can't stop. I didn't know what to say, so I kept quiet. I couldn't take my eyes off of her pistol. I took a couple of slow steps toward the kitchen counter where my keys were, hoping she would stay involved with her don't-start-smoking advertisement. That's my penance, you see. Addiction drove me into the darkness, causing me to abandon everything. It wasn't just these little puppies, oh no. These are child's play. 
I went for the hard stuff. She rolled up her sleeve, revealing track marks, marring her skin like dozens of angry bug bites. From the corner of my eye, her veins started to wiggle. Detective, is everything okay? She lit the cigarette and took a deep drag. Her face relaxed, and the inkling of a smile cracked her lips. Then, as quickly as it appeared, it disappeared, replaced by a grimace. Shin started to hack and cough until she spit up a wad of black blood on the kitchen table. No, Mr. Devon, everything is not okay. I messed up. I inched closer to the car keys. If I could grab them and go, perhaps I could get out before she went nuclear. I didn't know what she was capable of, but the deadpan look in her tired eyes told me enough. I should have listened to her, took her seriously but I was too concerned about my next fix to care. Maybe this all could have been avoided if I had just given a shit. I stopped. What are you talking about? She looked at me and took another drag on her cigarette. Her face contorted into a mask of pain, and she started hacking again, spraying the kitchen with more blood. When the fit passed, she put the cigarette out on the table, smashing it into the lacquered wood. I didn't care, and now they're dead. I messed up. Who's dead? Kathy? Do you know where she is? I took a step forward and Shins picked up the pistol, stopping my advance. I put my hands out in front of me. Whoa, hold on, I said. I know where your daughter is, Shins said. She doesn't belong. She's there because you messed up. She lifted the gun to her head and pulled the trigger. Brain matter, hair, and chunks of skull painted the fridge. Shin slumped into the chair like a rag doll. Her eyes were open and staring at me, and I swore she still had that tired smile on her face. Smoke from the gunshot floated from her skull in a weak wisp, crawling toward the ceiling. I wasn't sure what to do. I could call the police, but it would be a nightmare. More than likely, they would want to take me in for questioning, and I couldn't afford the lost time. Kathy was depending on me to find her. There was only one option, and that option was to move forward. I grabbed the keys off the counter and headed out the door. I had to take Olivia's car because our other vehicle was totaled in the accident. It was a strange feeling. When I got in, I realized that I never drove her car anywhere. I had to adjust the seat and mirrors. When I turned the car on, her radio station buzzed to life, filling the vehicle with pop country music. As I went to change the station, static came across the radio drowning the song out, and replacing it with his voice. Hey there, boys and ghouls. You're burning daylight. Kathy doesn't have much longer. The radio returned to normal. However, it wasn't playing the original song. Now it played Patsy Cline's Crazy. I took the message to heart and sped to Olivia's parents' house. I arrived to the sound of gunfire. Two shots, with the living room window lighting up with the muzzle flash. I wish I had grabbed Shin's gun from her dead grip before I had left, but my head hadn't been in the right place. Plus, how would I explain my fingerprints on the detective's gun when it all went to trial? It was bad enough that she was dead in my kitchen. I killed the engine and got out of the vehicle. My brain screamed at me to get back in the car, drive away and call the cops, let them handle the attacker. Yet my heart, the heart that yearned to see Kathy safe, demanded that I go inside. I crept up to the door, trying to be as quiet as possible. 
I stopped on the porch and listened, hoping to catch some indication of how many people were in there, or if they were moving around. However, there was nothing but crickets and the low hoot of an owl in the nearby cottonwood trees. As I reached out for the doorknob, I had an eerie sense I'd been there before in that exact moment. I tried to shrug the feeling off, but stopped when I turned the knob, placing my opposite hand on the door. There was a bloody handprint right where I put my hand. The dimensions fit so perfectly that I pulled away and inspected my fingers for blood. They were clean as far as I could tell, but something was wrong. In my mind, I already knew how this was going to play out. I would enter through the foyer, and the lamp would be overturned as well as the shoe rack. I opened the door, and sure enough, just as I thought, it matched my memory completely. I didn't know what it meant, but it couldn't mean anything good. Next, I would turn the corner, and Olivia's parents would be dead on the floor, lying in a pool of sticky blood. I still hadn't heard any movement, but deep down, I knew there wouldn't be any. This was becoming too familiar, and I knew what the end result would be. I took a deep breath and rounded the corner. There were two pools of blood, but no bodies. The coffee table was on its side, and their old Jurassic-era CRT television was face down on the floor. The smoky metallic smell of a fired gun permeated the air so thickly I could taste it. I backed out of the living room, almost tripping over the overturned coffee table, all the while reeling from the intense feeling of deja vu. Something chimed from the kitchen. It beeped in a rhythm, following the beat of my heart before turning into a mechanical cadence. Hello? Is someone there? The beep sounded again. I moved to the edge of the kitchen entryway and peeked in. The lights were on, but nobody was in there. The beeps were coming from the oven. It was the cooking timer. I approached the oven, cautious as to what I might find in there. Reaching out with a shaky hand, I turned the timer off, just as it started to sound again. I peered through the little rectangular window, hoping to get an idea of what was baking. But I couldn't see through the gloom. Rather than turn on the oven light, I opted to open the door. The mind-blowing aroma of freshly baked cookies rushed out into the kitchen, followed by the blast of heat from the oven. The heat rolled over my skin, which at first was nice. I didn't realize how cold I had been until I opened the oven. But the pleasure soon faded. It was hot, too hot for comfort, and worse than it should have been. For half a moment I thought my skin would ignite right there in the kitchen, and that I would be engulfed in an inferno. I backed away, running into the table. It scooted across the linoleum, sending a low rumble through the house. Grant, what's wrong with you? Shut the door. It was Olivia's mother, Patricia. I turned to face her, and my sanity fractured ever so slightly. She stood in the entryway between the living room and the kitchen. Her face was a mess of blood and bone. Whoever shot her had shot her in the back of the head, and the bullet exited through her eye socket. The exit wound was enormous, big enough to see through. The bullet had obliterated her nose, and half of her cheek hung to the side as if it were a piece of deli meat. Jesus Christ! Language, young man, Olivia's father, Morgan, said, although it came out in a mumble. I turned and found him standing in the other entryway, leading out to the hall. 
Similar to Patricia, he had been shot in the back of the head, but for him the bullet had gone through his lower face. His jaw hung at an odd angle, touching his chest. Blood oozed out in a line of drool onto the floor, followed by the quiet clink of a tooth. Morgan, now we'll have to clean up the floor, Patricia said. This can't be happening. This isn't real, I said. You're right. This isn't happening. It happened, Morgan mumbled. It happened because you messed up, Patricia said. They both walked into the living room and lay down over their respective blood pools. Patricia propped up on her elbows and looked up at me. The light from the kitchen caught her eye, and it took on a shine not unlike a cat's in the dark. Please turn off the oven before you go, she said. Then she fell face first onto the living room floor, dead. A woman's scream cut through the house, rattling the foundation and causing the lights to flicker. It seemed to come from everywhere, and I couldn't shut it out, no matter how hard I plugged my ears. I left without turning off the oven, stumbling through the living room, doing my best to avoid Olivia's dead parents. As I exited the house, another gunshot barked, this time from the upper level of the house, and the screaming stopped. I fished in my pockets for the car keys when I noticed Olivia's car was gone. Instead, my sedan sat in the driveway. It was just as I remembered it before the crash, as if nothing had happened at all. I rubbed my eyes, hoping it was a trick or an illusion, but it was still there. The world tilted and turned, causing me to throw up in the nearby lilac bushes. My heartbeat skyrocketed, and for a moment my vision blurred. My body spasmed, as if I'd just stuck a butter knife into an electrical outlet, and I dropped to the ground in a heap. I tried to get up, but it hit me again, and I fell to the concrete, unable to breathe. I couldn't see, and all around me there were voices. The words were jumbled, and I couldn't make a lick of sense of anything. Yet through it all, his voice rose above all else, the constant gibbering of something just beyond understanding, as if all I needed were a final piece of the puzzle, and it would all make sense. My vision came back slowly, blurry at first. I rolled to my stomach and pushed up until I could get my knees underneath my body. I sat back and took in a deep lungful of air, relishing the oxygen. My sedan still sat where Olivia's was a moment before. The door was open with the constant chime letting me know that it was in fact open with the keys and the ignition. When I felt ready, I stumbled to the car and got in. Everything was as I left it, including my revolver wedged between the driver's side seat and the center console. I vaguely remember putting the gun in my vehicle, but I couldn't quite remember the reason. I picked it up, opening the cylinder. There were three spent shells with two ready to go. The radio chimed on, a three-tones blast indicating another message was incoming. I searched around the car, looking for something to write with. That's when the gibbering man came over the air. Howdy, boys and ghouls. I hope you've liked our little show so far. We're nearing the end of our spine-tingling tale of terror. Stay tuned, because who knows what might happen. Turn your decoder rings to Lima 03. That's Lima 03. The old-timey music played again, giving me a chance to dig a pen out of the glove box. I didn't have any clear paper, so I used my vehicle registration. The music stopped, and I waited. Daddy? 
Are you there? I want to see Mommy now. I don't like it here anymore. Kathy was on the verge of tears. I had heard her like this hundreds of times before. I'm here, honey. Stay strong. Daddy's coming. The gibbering man mumbled something quiet in the background. Okay, Kathy said. But then I want to see my mommy. More incoherent ramblings. Three, four, five, zero, five, four, zero, four, two, three, seven, six, two, three, three, two, two, eight, nine, three, one, nine, two, zero, three, six, eight, seven, five, four. I scribbled the numbers down, and the radio went silent. I dug the code book out of my pocket, looking up the coded message. Daddy, why did you? I knew what was next. It hit me from deep down, and I said the words before I wrote them. Hurt Mommy? I hadn't hurt Mommy, yet, even as the thought crossed my mind, my knuckles ached, and I couldn't stop looking at the pistol. It couldn't be. There was no way. Really, Grant? No way? Olivia said from the passenger seat. I looked over to her and wished I hadn't. Like her parents, she had been shot. A bullet hole was centered on her forehead, with a steady stream of dark blood pouring down between her eyes. It ran in a channel, around her nose and into her mouth. When she spoke, it sprayed all over the interior of the car, sprinkling me in the face. Olivia! What happened? I knew what happened. The knowledge was there. It was always there, just under the surface but I needed to hear it. You happened. You messed up. She reached across and placed a hand on mine. It was hot. I wanted to pull away, but I couldn't. Leave me alone. She smiled and squeezed my hand, sending waves of pain up my arm. My chest constricted. My heart missed a beat. I tried to breathe, but my lungs refused to cooperate. I wish I could, honey buns, but I'm not leaving without Kathy. She's home now, playing with Dr. Eyepatch. Let her go, Olivia said. She still wore a smile on her face, but her voice was ice cold. She let go of my hand and slumped into the seat, dead. As soon as she let go, my lungs started to function again, and the pain in my chest dissipated. For a few moments I sat there, taking deep breaths, never taking my eyes off my dead wife. How could I let Kathy go if I hadn't even found her yet? Besides, if she thought I was going to give up my daughter to her, she had another thing coming. Olivia mentioned Kathy was home. I didn't know what to believe anymore, but I'd run out of options. I threw the car into reverse and pulled out of the driveway, kicking it into drive. I buried the pedal and raced back toward the house. Olivia still sat lifeless in the passenger seat, and I kept stealing glances her way, worried that she would spring to life and grab me again. Something moved in the back seat. Instinctively, I looked at the rear view expecting to see Kathy back there playing with one of Olivia's health magazines. However, it wasn't her. It was him. A man sat in the back seat wearing a dark suit and a tan trench coat. He was tall, having to lean forward to fit. It wasn't that he appeared out of nowhere that almost caused me to swerve off the road. It was his face. His nose was too long and hooked, like a hawk's beak, and his cheeks were very distinct, 
as if chiseled from stone. He pulled his mouth into a wide grin, showing rows of long, crooked teeth ending in deadly points. The most disturbing thing was his lack of eyes. He didn't even have sockets, just smooth skin where they should have been. He opened his mouth and static spewed forth. The radio in the car turned on, mimicking the same static. It got louder and louder until I thought my brain would burst. Then came the gibbering. Thousands of voices were talking, whispering, laughing, and screaming. The screams were the worst, millions of tortured souls crying out for it all to stop. Then he closed his mouth with a snap and cocked his head to the side. His voice came through the radio. We're almost at the end of our ride, boys and ghouls. We're coming to a crossroads. Time to make a choice. What do you want? I want Kathy to be happy. Isn't that what you want? I mashed the gas pedal once again, accelerating, trying my damnedest to be subtle. I reached down and grabbed the pistol. There were still three shots, more than enough to spread this thing's brains all over the back seat. I can make her happy. Let's be real. You haven't done a bang-up job yet, have you? A kaleidoscope of memories slammed my mind. Memories of me ignoring Kathy and leaving Olivia to deal with her. Memories of me yelling at my daughter, leaving her in tears. I'd beaten Sterling Smith nearly to death when I had found out about him and Olivia. Then I'd gone after her. I remembered I attacked her in our bathroom, beating her nearly to death. She'd taken Kathy and ran off to her parents' house. Then came the drinking. That's what sealed the deal and set my mind to the task. I was going to make things right and make sure that we were all happy. But I messed up. I drove to her parents' house, broke in and killed them, shooting them execution-style in the living room. Then I killed Olivia in the upstairs bedroom. I dragged her body to the car, collected my daughter, and hit the road. She was in the back seat crying. I wanted to make her happy and stop her tears. I wanted all of us to be together again, one big, happy family. I was trying to calm her just before we wrecked. I'm so sorry, I said to no one in particular. You will be, but like I said before, this isn't about you. It's about her. Kathy? Bingo. She's stuck, and you need to let her go. This isn't the place for her. Her voice came across the radio. Mommy? Is that you? Olivia was no longer in the front seat of the car. Yes, Pumpkin, it's me. They were both crying, and I could picture them together, holding each other in a tight embrace. I can make it work. I can make it better, I said. I'm afraid we're past that point, but if you don't let her go, she'll be stuck here with you. Let her go, Olivia said. Once again, my chest constricted, and I couldn't breathe. This time it was worse. An intense pressure mounted in my shoulder, and I slumped forward in my seat. I just wanted them to be happy, no matter the cost. It was the last thing I remembered before my car slammed into another sedan that looked eerily just like mine. I wake up in a hospital room with the mechanical buzz of medical equipment and the steady beep of a heart rate monitor. The window shades are pulled, but the warm summer sun bakes outside the window. I look around the room, but nobody is there. I open my mouth to speak, but my throat is incredibly parched, 
and I can't make anything more than a half-hearted hacking noise. I try to get up. Kathy. Comes out more like a croak than a word, but it gets someone's attention. A woman walks into the room holding a clipboard. She is wearing lavender scrubs and a medical mask over her nose and mouth. Her eyes are hard, and specks of blood coat the front of her outfit. Mr. Devon, you're awake, she says with a hint of surprise, making a few notes on the clipboard. A nurse follows her in. He's a big fellow, with tattoos running down both forearms. He gives me a sneer as he begins to check my vitals. Where's Kathy? The woman lowers her head a bit, avoiding eye contact. Mr. Devon, how are you feeling? she asks. You've had a rough run, and you've had a rough run, and we've had to bring you back a few times. We weren't sure if you would make it. Where's my family? She lets out a sigh and pulls the mask from her face. Mr. Devon, your wife is dead. Her funeral was two days ago. You've been in a coma for the last two weeks. I lean my head back and shut my eyes. This isn't what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to bring us back together and make us a happy family. And my daughter? Mr. Devon, your daughter passed away minutes ago. She died in surgery. I want to say something, but I can't. All that comes out is a low wail. I need to see her one last time before she's gone. I want to get up, but that's when I notice my arm is handcuffed to the hospital bed. Let me out of here. I need to see her. I need to see my daughter. I struggle against the bonds thrashing in my hospital bed. The woman whispers something to the nurse, and he nods running out of the room. Moments later, Detective Shins walks in. Her eyes have a glaze over them as if she's riding a high and not quite with it all. Whenever she looks at me, her face conveys guilt. Another detective accompanies her. He's a tall man with a hawkish nose and deadpan eyes. Mr. Devon, we're glad to see you're awake. We have some questions for you regarding the death of your wife, Olivia. I sink back into my bed and can't help but laugh. I know it waits for me when I die. I've tasted hell, and it's inside me now. I know who waits for me when I die. And it isn't Kathy. It's the gibbering man. That was C.R. Langeel's Kathy Loves Kittens, as read by Jonathan Danz. Jonathan Danz is a writer who lives on the edge of the New River Gorge, that is, in West Virginia, with his wife, daughter, and a menagerie of domestic pets. When not narrating, Jonathan can be found working on his first novel, riding his bike in the woods, or hanging out with his family. He even manages to hold down a steady job. If the mood strikes, visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandans.com. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Jonathan. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. 
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.